All right, our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, a day to gather. We thank you for a place to gather. Father, we thank you for a word to gather around. I pray that as we think about Advent today, we think about the coming of your Son and putting on flesh. Father, becoming a baby on a manger. Father, that as we think about you, the God of the universe in this state, uh, we would recognize our position And while we talk about a few of those positions today, Father, I pray that we would find that safety and refuge under your hand. That we not leave behind the promises of 1 Peter that we have labored over. Father, we recognize that the humble in a state, just as you humbled yourself, find their rest in you. Father, we pray for the word today, that it would soften our hearts, and Father, that we would see you more clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, um, just open it because we're going on a journey. It's, uh, it's what we do when I, I guess it's something I do. Uh, particularly when we don't have a, a primary text, but if I could hang our hats on anything today, it will be that Psalm 62 passage, particularly verses 11 and 12. But what I want us to think about today, the title of their sermon, is A King of Power. A King of Power. Of power. This is the second time since I've even been home from sabbatical that I've got to emphasize the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus, uh, and I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's something that I have spent a good bit of time on uh, in my sabbatical this year. I'm grateful for that. It's something I think is important for us as we contemplate this idea of Christmas and the coming of our Lord. So I want to ask, when we think about a king of power, what comes to mind when you think of power in general? It's a word that's thrown around a lot today, and it has many different meanings. I follow strongman, the sport of strongman, pretty well. That's kind of a a niche sport, although it's better than bowling. Um, And I I love our American strongman, Brian Shaw, Martins Lisi's, awesome and seeing them fight to be the first to ever deadlift a thousand pounds, blasting through the Atlas Stones. I mean, is there any 
better expression of raw power than a man. I, I, I love that sport. But maybe still in sports, when you think of power, you think of the likes of MJ, Kobe, LeBron, maybe Brady or Rogers, Tiger or Nicholas, baseball person one or two. <laughs> the power to single-handedly change a sport for all time in, in their own unique ways. Maybe, though, it's in the realm of political power, from military might measured in chariots, like for, for King David, or tanks in World War II with Hitler, or nuclear warheads and hypersonic missiles, as we look today. Or maybe in, in politics, the power to seat judges, to make laws, to prosecute, or just the ability to speak truth to power. There's, there's power in so many things. I mean, going into the arts, the, the, a vocalist hitting a high note. Books that change the way people think. Or an idea for a movie that then becomes ingrained in culture. All the way to the home, a dad's stare at a disobedient child. There's power there. A wife responding with, I'm fine. There's power there. Not my wife, I've heard. (laughs) Or maybe just a good cup of coffee, right? Powerful things. As Christians, the question we have to ask is, how do we interact with power? All of these different aspects. What are these powers, and where does power come from? What is it? All these examples of power so far are worldly powers. Some are mundane. And others are extraordinary. But they are still a far cry from true power. Even through the incredible experience of witnessing the power of my wife to form and bring four children, four lives, into this world, powerful, it still pales in comparison to the power we're talking about today. So let's answer that last question first. What are we talking about? What is power? Take a definition from Stephen Charnock, who's a Puritan theologian. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. Supposed to be on screen. The power of God is that ability and strength, the ability and strength, whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. That is the power of God. So let's start then at the beginning and talk about this. What if God didn't have this power? In order to see as clearly as we can what it is, let's start with what it would be if it were not. The first point for today is this, the misery of King Nothing. The misery of King Nothing. James Monroe, a fifth president of the United States, said this in his vast dealings with uh, governments over the water and helping bring America about in its infancy, said a king without power is an absurdity. A king without power is an absurdity. And we need to understand that without power, God cannot be king. 
There is no such thing as a king without power. And so without power, God cannot be king. Recognize the sheer magnitude and importance, at least from our end in this particular case, of the power of God being a necessity. Stephen Charnock goes on to say this, As holiness is the beauty of God's attributes, of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. Listen to these. How vain would be the eternal counsels of God if power did not step in to actually execute them. Without power, His mercy would be but feeble pity. His promises, an empty sound. His threatenings, a mere scarecrow. God's power is like Himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, or frustrated by the creature. Can you imagine a more miserable existence, a more miserable God, a God who cannot affect the things that He wants to do? The mercies that we know would instead just be simple pity. His threatenings of wrath that we hear from Pastor Greg, a mere scarecrow, no ability whatsoever. How miserable that would be. I recognize that it's His power that guarantees and affects all of these things that we come to know about what He offers. It is His power on display in Romans 9 that gets the good things of Romans 8. And this is what a world apart from Him would look like. What we experience even when we would crown ourselves King. We get pity, not mercy. Just words of promise and no deliverance. We stare at a scarecrow and and laugh. And God, apart from His sovereignty, is no king. He is the all-powerful one, or He is not. Without power, God cannot be king. The second part of that I want you to see is this. We are king nothings. We are king nothings. We all desire to be king, just like our forefather Adam. We want to be the boss. We call that moral legislative autonomy. Do it in reverse. We want to, on our own autonomy, legislate right morality, what is right and wrong. Apart from God, we want to write on our own what is right and wrong. We want to be the boss. We want to be king, just like Adam. We want to dictate the outcome Influence events. We want to be in control. Have the answers for everything. Be, in fact, the answer to everything. To have our families ordered the way that we deem best. To have our careers bring us fulfillment. To decide what is best and to make sure that everything works. To be the great one what it means to be king. I appreciate this summary from Jimmy Needham in his uh, song, The Story. He says this about Satan, and it so reflects the state of man at the time. He says, Now the serpent was craftier than any beast in the garden, and he made a beeline for the tree line. And in less than 50 words, he convinced perfectly satisfied man that he was starving to death. 
Hey, just imagine, right? Last week and Thanksgiving at the table, finish it, fit that pie inside, right? And top it off with some coffee just to weigh it all down. And he shows up and he says, you're starving to death. You're starving to death. You, you must go and do this. And he couldn't see how completely satisfied and stuffed he was. In less than 50 words, convinces them to be king. That God doesn't care that you have to be king in order to make these things happen. Wishing to have our way, looking for satisfaction everywhere, and money, respect, pleasure, friendship, marriage, family, play, rest, all the things that don't satisfy. Ecclesiastes explores all of these things and finds them vanity. Things that we waste and things that we chase. We usually use hymns up here. I'm going to use some Metallica for you. One of my favorite songs are theirs, King Nothing. They say this, and it all crashes down, and you break your crown, and you point your finger, but there's no one around. Just want one thing, just to play the king. But the castle crumbled, and you're left with just a name. Where's your crown, King Nothing? That's, that's our state. In Adam, that is our state. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? What have you done? We have no power. We are king nothings. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. It is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. We need a powerful king. We can't be it. We need him to be that powerful king. So next I want you to see a king of kings. A king of kings. Psalm 62, verse 11. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God. Power belongs to Him alone. I appreciate the poetry aspect here. Once God has spoken, and twice I heard it, right? So forceful is His speaking that He hears it twice. As it echoes throughout the chapter, throughout the song, power belongs to God. Psalm 18, 13 through 15. If I could encourage you to read something at home, it would be this chapter, Psalm 18. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, 
and the foundations of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. That is power. God is power. It is who He is. He doesn't just have it. He is it. It is, in fact, His name. Mark fourteen sixty two. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Capital P, power. And coming with the clouds of heaven. And it is the name of God, of power. He doesn't happen to just have a lot. He is it. That is the nature of the attributes of God. He is those things. He doesn't have them. They are His being. I think it's interesting, particularly as we look at this King of Kings, this power of powers, that even the power that's displayed in the visible creation is utterly beyond our powers of comprehension. He has put His power on display for us to see. And even with our own eyes that can see, we can't understand it. So how could we ever even hope to conceive of omnipotence itself, of all power itself? For even what we see, we cannot understand. There is infinitely more power lodged in the nature of God than is expressed in all His works. We look around at the entire universe and have some idea of what it means to be all-powerful. And even that is but a shadow. There is no limit, there is no end to His power. Job twenty six fourteen, Behold, these are but the outskirts of His ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of Him. But the thunder of His power, who can understand? Job says the outskirts of His ways. Like the fringe. The small glimpse. These are but just, just echoes of His power. And we see these echoes very clearly in creation, in providence, in our redemption. But only a little part, the fringe, the outskirts of his might is even seen in those acts. My favorite piece for today is, is this. From Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 4. It says, His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. He veiled it. He hid it. He hid his power. Brightness like the light. Rays flashing from his hands. And it was there in this bright light that he veiled it. That he pulled the curtains on it. That he hid it. The whole chapter is full of earth-shattering and shaking power. Just like at Sinai. Like we did in Exodus a year ago. Earth-shattering, shaking power. The prophet beheld the mighty God scattering the hills and overturning the mountains. Which one would think afforded an amazing demonstration of His power. Nay, says our verse, that is rather the hiding than the displaying of His power. What is meant by this? This. So inconceivable. So immense. So uncontrollable is the power of deity that the fearful convulsions which he works in nature conceal more than they reveal of his infinite might. A.W. Pink. We look, if, you're, if you've ever been on a beach, if you've ever been in the mountains, if you've ever been up actually early, you've seen sunrises, you see creation, you have this sense of wonder. 
Experience the storms. Experience the tornadoes. Experience all of these things. See eclipses. See pictures of the heavens. All of these things that we think are so grand in their display of His power actually conceal it more than they reveal it. Or else do we see His power in creation? God said, so powerful in creation, He said, let there be. And it was. And it was. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Anyone ever spoken something into existence? If I want to echo my Creator and His creation, I have to come up with an idea. I have to plan the idea. I have to go get the materials for the idea. I have to have the tools to implement on the materials. I have to have the skill to use the tools. I have to have then the time to complete it, the eye to understand it, and by God's grace, the ability to complete it. I can't just say it, and it happens. With no materials, with no planning, with no tools, with nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, he creates with his word. What else? What does his word of power do? The power in preservation. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He spoke it into existence, and that same word is what sustains it and preserves it. Hebrews 1 3. We see his power in government, the restraining of Satan. I appreciate uh, this outline from, from Pink. He says, He that envied Adam in paradise envies us the pleasure of enjoying any of God's blessings. Could he, Satan, have his will, he would treat all the same way that he treated Job. He would send fire from heaven on the fruits of the earth, destroy the cattle, cause a wind to overthrow our houses, and cover our body with boils. He restrains Satan from all of these things and worse. The restraining of our own natural corruption. We are totally depraved people. We are capable of nothing good apart from the grace of God. Even those things that our world would morally categorize as good, apart from the grace of God, they are selfish, man-promoting acts. We all want to be king. It is by the grace of God that we are able to do things that are good. But while we are totally depraved, we are not utterly depraved. We are not as bad as we could possibly be. There's a restraining measure of grace in the believer and in the unbeliever that keeps them from being as bad as they could possibly be. Well, just investigate how quickly our nature would turn to that. Just how quickly it happened after Adam that we turned to death and his own sons with Cain. <clears throat> how quickly we get to Noah. We see his power in judgment. And none can resist him except for those in the ark, the entire human race, helpless before the storm of his wrath. They were swept away. Is that the scarecrow that you're used to looking at? 
It's the one that we want to preach. It's easier to look at a scarecrow than it is to stare at the wrath of God. It was a shower of fire and brimstone from heaven, and the cities of the plain were exterminated in Sodom and Gomorrah. Pharaoh and all his army were impotent when God blew upon them at the Red Sea. In one act, the waters came back, and the Egyptian army was no more. What a terrifying word is that in Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? We must come face to face with this King of Kings. This one who has all power. God is going. He will. He is going to display His mighty power upon the unbeliever, not merely by imprisoning them in hell, not merely separating Himself from them, placing them in bondage. It's not just that but by supernaturally preserving their bodies as well as souls amid the eternal burnings of the lake of fire. It is the destination of all those apart from Christ. Merry Christmas. Power belongs to God. It would be good that all would tremble before such a God. Pink says this in, in, in relation to this. He says, To treat with impudence one who can crush us more easily than we can a moth is a suicidal policy. To openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence, who can rend us in pieces or cast us into hell any moment he pleases is the very height of insanity. Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115.3 And so, it would be good to ask, I think, what does He please? (laughs) What does He please? If this is the terrifying King of Kings that I must come into contact with, face to face with, Recognize that one day I will stand before him in judgment. And he does whatever he pleases. What is that? <laughs> what does he please? What does he use his power for? The last thing I want you to see today. The good news of loving power. The good news of loving power. In case you're wondering, we are flying through the sermon today. This is not Pastor Matt's last week with a very, very long last point. <laughs> the simple concept for us today is to come face to face with the powerful God of the world. To recognize that we are not. And that something is demanded of us. The good news of loving power. Two points and two applications. First point. His power is tied 
to his steadfast love. This is where everything changes, okay? Apart from this, all we have, wrath. Why? Because this all-powerful one, we have offended by sin, right? That's why we have hell and the lake of fire. Because he cannot stand sin. He is first holy, the perfection of all his attributes. And since we have offended his holiness, we stand face to face with the all-powerful one. But everything changes in verse 12 of Psalm 62. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God. And. And. Those of you that have been in my How to Study the Bible class, we know that conjunctions are really important. And matters. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Why is this good news? Why? What does this loving power mean? Recognize that the steadfast love of verse 12 is his covenant-keeping love. Covenant-keeping love. When you read the Scriptures and you see steadfast love, love in general, we remember that God is a God of covenants. He makes them on His own. He keeps them on His own. It is His steadfast love that preserves the covenant that we hope in, that we now in Jesus Christ find our salvation in. And so when we see this steadfast love belonging to God, it is paired in our poetry with this power. And when you see covenant keeping love in the scriptures as a New Testament believer, what do we see? The gospel. This is the gospel. In Psalms, it's a reliance on the covenant that one day becomes the good news, the gospel. This steadfast love is covenant-keeping love. And so we have a king who, without power, would be an absurdity, but a capricious or malicious king with power is a terror. But we have a king who has steadfast love. Changes everything. It changes everything. Now listen, this doesn't take that majestic, all-powerful one that we just spoke of and turn him into a Build-A-Bear. It doesn't remove the wrath. It doesn't, it doesn't take away from his hatred of sin and the punishment that will be poured out on it. Rather, it affirms the awesome fear of God inside covenant protection. The steadfast love of this covenant-keeping God all on his own for our behalf we find rest in. We are inside that covenant protection. God takes His covenant promises seriously. And for those that are safely in it, He keeps it. And there's blessing. But for those who are not safely within, who are not within that covenant, there's curse. Because it doesn't just end with steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Today, my friends, is the day of repentance. 
Today is the day to recognize that our crown is broken. Our castles have crumbled. We're left with just a name. Today is our opportunity to tear down our own kingdoms. Our lives are but a breath and length. Go up just a few verses in Psalm 62. Our lives are but a breath and length. Our power and abilities are delusions. On the scale, the psalmist says, they are together lighter than a breath. And that's it. Believe in the gospel. This good news of the steadfast covenantal love that he brings to us. His power is tied to his steadfast love. The second thing I want you to see in this, the good news of loving power, is that it pleases him to do good for those that he loves. This is that ongoing blessing in covenantal love. Psalm chapter 18, verse 19. He says this, He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. Because he delighted in me. Covenant son, he delights in you. The all-powerful one of the heavens delights in you. You don't add anything to him. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from you. Your power is adorable to him. Just like my girls trying to help me off the couch, right? It's cute. He simply delights in you. Why? Because he loves you. Go to Ephesians 2. Go to John 3. We know that he delights in these things because he delights in us. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be in covenant relationship with him that we might know his steadfast love, that we might bring glory to his name by his work on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28, the one we all love and have on our walls. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The good news, the gospel, is that he is pleased to do good for those that he loves. As we look at Christmas, as we look at this incarnation, as we think about what our days are filled with, it's filled with finding good for ourselves. When we have one who says, don't be anxious, I will feed you, I will clothe you, I will provide for you. Who tells us, don't, don't worry about today, there's grace for today. You don't have to worry about tomorrow, there'll be grace for that day tomorrow. He tells us to trust Him. To come under His mighty right hand. To humble ourselves. To recognize that we have no crown but the one that He gives us. That we give back to Him. He is pleased to do good for those that He loves. How do we know this? How do we see this? 
I think this was most openly displayed when God became incarnate and tabernacled among men. When he put on flesh, when he became Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation to put on flesh. We see this in Matthew 8, verse 3. To the leper, he said what? With his words. He stretched out his hands, touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. To the one who'd lay in the grave four days, he cried out, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man came to life and walked out of a tomb. Had he not said Lazarus, they all would have. The stormy wind and the angry wave were hushed at a single word from hill. Still. A legion of demons could not resist his authoritative command. Power belongs to God. Power that was laid down, put on a cross, buried, raised again. Power that was universe-encompassing and chose to put on flesh. It pleases Him to do good for those He loves. These things should move us to two different things. Two things. Very simple. Very full. (laughs) The first one is worship. It should move us to worship. As we conceive of what we can understand of this all-encompassing, universe-filling, earth-shattering, but still-veiled power, we should be moved to worship. The wondrous and infinite perfections of such a being call for fervent and full worship. If men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, sports figures, movie stars, the politicians, whatever. If men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment? Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And He loves doing it. It's not a burden for Him. He delights in you. And He loves doing these wonders, these glorious deeds. I so appreciate John Piper in a book that I'm working through right now. He calls it a God-entranced world. A God-entranced world that's very Piperish. God-entranced world. He says it makes you see reality different. He says, for example, I used to look at sunrises when I was jogging and think that God has created a beautiful world. And then... It became less general and more specific, more, more personal. I said, every morning God paints a different sunrise, right? He never gets tired of doing it again and again. But then it struck me, no, he doesn't do it again and again. He never stops doing it. The sun is always rising somewhere in the world. God guides the sun 24 hours every day and paints sunrises at every moment, century after century, without one second of respite, and never grows weary or less thrilled 
with the work of his hands. Even when cloud cover keeps man from seeing it, God is painting spectacular sunrises above the clouds. If that doesn't lead you to worship, we're missing it. And that conceals more than reveals his glory. What wondrous love is this? What power there is in his word. We should worship and know him. We should worship and know his word. The word spoken, created, and the word in your hands sustains. It is sufficient for all things for a life of godliness. To honor him and to serve him well. You hold it in your hands. He has revealed himself to you in such a way that you can know him. He has accommodated himself that we might know him. We should worship. And finally, we should pray. We should pray. I read another article from Piper. This is back in July. I was in my last month of sabbatical, starting to kind of... I didn't know anything about work yet, but I'm preparing for the idea of entering back into work. I read an article. It's from a sermon of Piper's. It's why comfortable Christians go prayerless. Talk about this with Matt and, and uh, Jeff and, and Ben um, as I was coming back in. Just one of the last things that God kind of dropped in my lap as I had time away. It talks about prayer and why we go prayerless. It's because we're comfortable, because we're in a state of peace. Particularly in the American church, we have lost our wartime mentality. We have lost the idea that we are... Uh, in the trenches, that we are at war, which is confusing for me at the time because in a real sense I was, I was home, <laughs> you know, in, in America, not in Europe. I, I was in America having rest on my sabbatical, getting prepared to go back to the front lines. And so it was a very helpful uh, opportunity for me to see what it meant to go to war. Because we are always at war here. And he says this, I never tire of telling the church that the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is because they try to take a wartime walkie-talkie and turn it into a domestic intercom by which they ring up the maid to bring another pillow. It malfunctions. It's made for tanks. It's made for trenches. It's made for war. It won't work when you install it in your yacht. It won't work at the lake cabin. It won't work in the second and third and fourth car it is meant for war. Because all those powers that we mentioned at the beginning are real powers. But they are powers of this earth, Ephesians 2, that we wrestle against. In the spiritual realm, we are at war. And our God put on flesh to join us here in the war. Not that he wasn't already involved, but he came here for us, to win it for us. And it is by prayer that we tap into the power of God. It is by the Spirit that He gave us through His ascension that we tap into that power. It is by prayer that we are actually able to put to use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Ephesians 6, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and how do you use it? And by all prayer and supplications, you put it to use. 
It was by asking the Father in Jesus' name that we, chosen and appointed ones, would go and bear fruit, and that that fruit would abide. John 15. It is by prayer that we enter into the courtroom of heaven and have an audience with this powerful king. And he is pleased to use his power for our good. You should be mindful of James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Many years ago, as we had been planting, some difficulties had kind of come into the church. And as the tail ends of this, my brother Matt said, you know what, I've been praying that God would help clarify us, help us see his word and depend on him more clearly. I said, brother, it would be really helpful for me in the future if you would let me know when you pray such things. (laughs) Okay? That I can see them coming then and not be surprised. Prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Why? Because we lean into the power of God. Because we trust him to work in ways that we cannot. And so church, repent and believe. Lay down your crown. It's nothing anyways. Take up the one that he offers. Where we get to reign and rule with him. With him. In his kingdom. Believe these things. And worship him. Because of them. And pray. Be a praying people. Put the power of God to use in your life. And on, in the lives of others on their behalf. Be a praying people. Because of these two things. We can know the God whose involvement in his children's lives and in the world is so pervasive, so all-embracive, and so powerful that nothing can befall them but what he designs for their glorification in him and his glorification in them. Second Thessalonians 1.12 And because this, you have the opportunity to live in the light of a transaction between the Father and the Son in the death of Christ that was so powerful that it secured absolutely for all time and eternity everything needed to bring the bride of Christ safely and beautifully to everlasting joy. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for Him coming on our behalf, living a life that we could not live. Father, making the, the sacrifice that we could not offer. And Father, the once and for all payment for our sin. Father, forgive us of our little kingdoms. Forgive us of the times we would be king. Forgive us of the sin that is. Father, forgive us of our unbelief to not see you as you are. Forgive us for being perfectly satisfied in you and still be left wanting. Father, all of these things are foolishness on our part. Father, let us be the wise one who sees the storm coming and takes refuge in the one who provides it. Father, we know we can do nothing good apart from you. Father, we know that we have no hope apart from you. So, Father, as we consider 
your coming and putting on flesh. Let us see, savor, glorify, enjoy the fact that you came and, Father, you used your power for our good. All of the things that we have experienced in recent days and all the things that are to come will be brought about by your careful hand for our good to be more like your Son, to be fashioned into His image so that one day we might be ready by His power and your grace and mercy to rule with Him. For now we look to Him seated at your right hand and look forward to the day that He will bring us to Him. Father, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.